Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open your Bibles up to Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, as we continue our series through Romans. Romans chapter 5. Our text this week is verses 1 and 2. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text from God's word this morning begins with the word, therefore. Given what has come before, this follows. What has come before upon which what follows is predicated, is a clear and lengthy exposition and an opening up of the doctrine of God's salvation, which is justification not by works, not by circumcision, not by nationality, not by being a Jew, but justification by faith in the death of God in Christ Jesus, cleansing man from sin. Faith in the salvation that comes through God's own righteousness, which we have imputed to us, not infused, but imputed to us by grace through faith. God's own righteousness becomes the righteousness of man, the righteousness of woman. When man, when woman places his or her hope only in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. Now, this is a doctrine that has been being opened up for four chapters. And somewhat arbitrarily, I want to say now seven things that have been being said through these four chapters upon which the word therefore stands. Number one, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. There is none righteous, no, not one. Number two, Jews are as incapable of keeping the law as Gentiles. Number three, Father Abraham and King David believed in God's righteousness, not in their own. Number four, Father Abraham and King David trusted in God being a God who forgives sins. Number five, it is God's righteousness that saves a man or woman, not man's righteousness. Number six, man's only hope is the death of righteous Jesus Christ bearing the punishment that we all deserve. And number seven, we must put our faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from ourselves to God and trusting him alone for our redemption, our salvation, and our justification. And so this is the meaning of this word, therefore. Given all that, therefore, having been justified by faith, we. 
This is what the Apostle Paul has been opening up in every way possible during the last four chapters. Now he builds it on it using the word therefore, and he leads us through the transition of the therefore to something new. Now what is that something new? Well, one thing that's the something new is he begins to use the word we. If you remember back in the first four chapters, it doesn't say we. It's pretty objective. It's pretty um, principio. It's, it's, it's not personal. It, it would be um, much more common for him to use the second and third person than the first person. But now the first person I and we, it just blossoms in what's coming in the book of Romans. And so there's a tenderness now. Because the Apostle Paul is talking to you and me as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been adopted by God, who stand in the grace of God by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ and by virtue of our despairing of ourselves. Okay? We... All right. Here the Apostle Paul turns from the world to the church, from the lost to the found, from the polyglot Roman Empire to his brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted by God their Father. And he speaks tenderly. He gathers them into his arms and begins to speak about the peace we have. The peace. Now, when I was reading this... um, because I was, when I was a little baby, I was in, uh, I don't know, cradle, playpen, I don't know what I was in. But my parents had just bought a stereo. And what they loved was Handel's Messiah. And so from the time I was a little baby, I heard Handel's Messiah constantly. And so I can't hear any of this stuff without thinking of the scripture that's, that's that's put to music in the Messiah. And so what comes to my mind as I'm listening to this is this from Isaiah 40. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God. God is speaking tenderly to us here through the Apostle Paul. And he's telling us that our sins have received double, that our warfare has ended, that we're covered. That we're covered. And listen, this is incredible. And nobody would ever believe this report. You know, the thing about Christian faith, the thing about Jesus, right? You know, when the Islamic, you know, guys over in London are talking to me and mocking my God who had to die on a cross. What a ludicrous thing. They were just mocking Jesus. You worship somebody that that got crucified, you know? And I just sit there looking at them and I think, you know, the wisdom of God. Who could ever dream up? the plan of salvation, that God himself would bear the iniquities of the world. And so people mock, and I just think, isn't it incredible? Who would ever have believed this report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves, okay, so what was our judgment of Jesus is he was humiliated throughout his life, humbled, mocked, scorned, and it didn't just start at the end of his life. It was all through his life, and it was the people of God that did it. It wasn't just the people of God, but it was their religious leaders. And so here he is, the suffering servant, and how do God's people receive him? Well, it says, yet we ourselves esteemed him, we judged him, what? Stricken. You know this by heart, right? smitten of God. And so that's how God's people saw it. They saw the humiliation of his life from beginning to end as an indication that he was stricken and smitten of God. As he was doing the works that he had seen his father doing, he said, as he was being obedient unto death, even the death on a cross, we judged him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God as he's doing the work of redemption of us. In our filth, we judge him. And that is me. And Isaiah goes on, but we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And then that wonderful verse that most people learn without learning Isaiah 53, I keep get pleading with you, get your children to memorize chapters of the Bible. And right then we have the verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's as plain as day in the Old Testament that God would be our righteousness. It could not be more clear. He himself would bear our sins. We wouldn't see it. And even that was prophesied. We would strive for our own righteousness and think his suffering servant was being punished for his own sins. He calls himself, you know... The Son of God, let him deliver him. If, if God delights in him, come on, come on, take him down off. Remember the mockery as Jesus hung on the cross. But not a chance. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yahweh, Jehovah, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And what is our response? Well, the text I thought of is a little bit later in Romans. I mean, there are times, right, when you read Scripture and you know the truth that you have to what? You have to exclaim. You have to lose yourself. And there's a beautiful example of this with the Apostle Paul later in Romans chapter 11, where as he opens these things up, he goes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do we ever have that kind of response to the word of God and to spiritual truth? One of my favorite sections in all church history is a section where uh, (laughs) Jonathan Edwards is talking about wrestling with God's decrees and predestination and election and God's fairness, you know. You can call it theodicy, but it's the issue of, well, can, can God be just if God chooses? And Edwards is, was not stupid, <laughs> you know, if you know anything about Edwards. He, the one thing you can't say is he's stupid, right? Right? I mean, everybody admits he's smart. And Edwards is piecing this together, and he just can't accept the fact that God predestines men to eternal life. Okay. And so he describes the battle he has in his heart trying to get himself to live at peace with a God who is sovereign. Okay? And it's a battle. And then he, then he gives the key to, to the conundrum. He solves the puzzle. He, he logics himself to the truth. He's, he reasons himself Right? Right? Is this what happened? No. Edwards is very bright, but he didn't logic or reason anything. What happened one day is, he says, that he was out in a field, and all of a sudden, it just washed over him, the glory of God. And then he describes reciting scripture out in this field, and it's very clear that this was the solution. The solution was not reason or logic. The solution was not a more sophisticated understanding of what is and isn't fair. The solution was worship. That's the solution. Do you understand this? You know, I always think of my mother when when I'm dealing with heavy things, okay? It's my mother that I think of, right? And I always think of my mother and how she demanded worship from me. Now, I... Don't worry, she didn't think she was God, okay? But remember I told you last week that I would go to her and say, but why? You know, kids, why? You know? And my mother demanded worship. What did she say? Because I said so, that's why. Is that logic? No. This is what God wants from us. God wants us to shut our mouths and realize because he said so, that's why. (laughs) That's worship, right? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. Can I get an amen? Isn't it sweet to you? Oh, come on, do I have to say it? Isn't it sweet to you? Yeah, it's sweet to us. And so to him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.
The apostle has been opening up this glorious truth, line by line, page by page, and he sums it up with this short statement, therefore, having been justified by faith, we, we, the imperial we, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, past tense, been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified by faith? Well, it's, it's, it's a way of speaking that stands for something larger. We have been justified by Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is understood there, okay? It's not justified by faith in, 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 in the IRS tax code that you've kept it, you know. Jesus is there, right? Justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not faith that's saving us. Faith is a placeholder for Jesus saving us, okay? Don't ever make that mistake of thinking that you have to marshal enough faith to be saved. No. What you have to marshal is enough humility to cling to Jesus. That's faith, okay? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was a, there was a book years ago written by Billy Graham. It was called Peace with God, okay? And so peace with God just kind of comes out of your mouth. It's mellifluous, right? It sounds sweet. Peace with God, right? We all like peace with God? Everybody like peace with God. Peace with God. I like peace with God. You like peace with God. Ain't it nice we have peace with God? The problem is we don't really believe in war with God. Now follow me. If you read the commentaries like of Robert Haldane and of Calvin, what they'll say is, let me read, uh, Calvin says, he alone is the beloved son, and we are all by nature the children of wrath. Now you know the word wrath means anger. And so in connection with our relationship with God, you and I are angry at God, and he is angry at us. He is angry with the wicked every day. All right? Um, Robert Haldane says this. He says, uh, Till they are justified, men are at war with God, and he is at war with them. Now, what do you think? I mean, you heard Scripture, so you, you all agree with Scripture, right? Until they're justified, men are at war with God, and God is at war with men, right? Everybody there, right? But do you live that way? No. The way you live, the way I live, is I'm constantly trying to mediate the tension between unbelievers and God. But not because I care about whether they're at peace with God, but because I really care whether they're at peace with me. Okay? And so I go through these, all these things, trying to somehow be at peace with people. And being a pastor, all right, um, that means that I have to juggle the truth in a sort of sneaky way. Because preaching for 35 years now, I'm pretty aware that men aren't at peace with God and God isn't at peace with men. 
but I really don't want to have tension with my family and with my neighbors and with you and your parents when they come and visit. Okay? And so what you really want to do is you want to find a way of paying lip service to peace with God in such a way that makes everybody feel good and nobody feel bad. You know? And so what do you do? Well, what you do is you mediate the tension between God and man. And how do you do that? Well, what you do is you cop to all of the accusations against the church. I used to work with a man with a PhD, so he was important. And this man would go around the country telling everybody that he was so thankful for feminism. Because feminism has given an opportunity to the church to repent of her terrible patriarchy and her terrible chauvinism. And, 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 but he has just a little bit of a beef with them about this and that text of Scripture. So he's magnanimous. He's the peacemaker. And they're not at war with God or with the fatherhood of God or with the text of Scripture, but he would like to just improve them, just this little place. Now, is that how you're going to win with feminism? <laughs> not a chance, right? There is such a thing in this world as rebels against God and against his fatherhood and authority. Have you, any of you ever found this out? We actually don't like authority. You know this about yourself? Okay, and so, you know, when it comes to the, the authority of fathers, we actually hate it. All right. Now, the way we handle the issue of feminism is we just try to modulate it and, and, and talk about how needed a, a social movement it is given the patriarchy of history and the chauvinism and, and how no man until I came along actually loved his mother or his wife or his daughters or his grandmother but finally, God has brought me, and I'm fully integrated. I love women. <laughs> I just love women. But I have a little beef with you. Actually, kephale really does mean head. But, but, but aside from that, we're good to go. Okay? Now, let's say homosexuality. Listen. It's shameful what the church has done to gays and lesbians and to transsexuals and to people with sexual dysphoria. It's shameful. And I understand the hurt that the church has caused. You ready for this? You ready for this? These people. I hate that. It's so disgusting. These people aren't these people. These people are us. We are homosexual and we are lesbian. If you haven't learned that yet, let people here confess their sins to you. Okay? It's not these people. And so some of these people are unwilling to repent, so they demand you accept them the way they are. And so knowing that Facebook is doing, you know, uh, what, what are those things called? Uh, mathematical... Yeah, algorithms. Facebook is doing algorithms... And you know, probably their algorithms are going to find the word sodomite. And so you change it to gay or maybe homosexual if you want to be halfway in between. And then you talk about how important it is that the church be, be able to be a place of sinners. And that we should not punish... Now, you know where I'm headed. We shouldn't punish people because they're what? Come on, tell me. Y'all know. Because they're broken, 
We shouldn't punish people because they're broken. I mean, everybody's broken after the fall. Do you hear this? It's a very sophisticated way whereby we mediate the tension between God and man. And why is that tension there? That tension is there for the same reason the tension was there between Sodom and God. Man is rebellious. Listen, I have lived enough years to have seen a lot of changes. Okay? And I have lived to watch America become the land of Canaan. It was not that way when I was a child. God said to the Jews, you've been down there in Egypt for 400 years, and finally the cup of my wrath is full against Canaan. And I am going to send you in there, and you're going to wipe out every man, every woman, and every child. Man, I don't worship a God like that. That sounds like he's angry. But you tell me that you have peace with God and that it gives you joy. Okay, come on, which is it? That's the God that you claim to have peace with. What's your peace worth if you don't recognize that anger and are fully convinced because he said so, that's why? You see, what we do is we pull down the authority of God. We pull down the law of God. We lift up our own sensitivities and our own compassion, and we try to mediate these things in such a way that we can be the hero. That we can be finally what the world has been waiting for, which is a fully integrated Christian witness that's not going to be scandalous. That, that is, I mean, the world was waiting for, for moi, for me. Because I have the perfect tone. You know, I'm not like Jody that starts, Jesus, I am righteousness. <laughs> you know, me, the world has been waiting for me. <laughs> I have the tone down, you know. I, I know where to start a hymn. Stupid Jesus. Stupid Apostle Paul. And you say, that's blasphemy. And I say, I'm not saying that. You're saying that. Well, it's still blasphemy. Well, then stop saying it. You say, well, I don't think I'm saying it. And I say, yeah, every time you mediate God's wrath against the wicked, you are saying that God is stupid. Or that he's unloving, but the Bible says God is love. You have all these ways of trying to claim that you have peace with God and that it's a delightful thing to you and you sing about it every Sunday, but then you go out in the world and you act as if everybody else has peace with God too. And they're all wonderful. Everybody, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your son who is actually constantly in rebellion you treat him as if he has peace with God. Why? Well, because he's your son. And you have peace with God, and so your son has peace. <laughs> oh, so in other words, it's a family affair, you know, sly in the family stone. You want me to sing it? No, no you don't want me to sing it? Shucks. Come on. 
Come on. Come on. Your God is way too small. It turns out your God doesn't have any authority at all. And so don't you tell me that you love peace with God. If you're undercutting his wrath against the wicked and you're acting as if you don't see what people around you in your own home, your own relatives, your own neighborhood, if you don't see that what John Newton says, I have a book in my office that was printed in the 1700s by John Newton. Okay? And the title of that book is Ecclesiastical History, Church History, and then the subtitle. They were always exegetical in their subtitles. And he says in the subtitle, a a, a brief account, you know, it's that thick, a brief account of the way that living faith, experimental faith, true faith, has been persecuted in the church across all ages. And so, you know, maybe some of you are okay with having a battle against the Kinsey Center. Maybe some of you are okay with saying no to the baptism of oneness Pentecostals. Maybe some of us still are willing to say no to Mormons. Right? But we're all feeling a little uptight now as I progress. Are any of us willing to say no to Protestants who are liberal? Okay, you've read Christianity and liberalism. Okay. So you're willing to say no to liberal Protestants, right? Okay, how many of us are willing to say no to evangelicals? How many of us are willing to say no to Presbyterians who want homosexuality to be accepted in the church as long as it's not acted on? You see, all the time we're mediating the tension and we're always choosing our relationships over God's authority. And so we can have people right in front of us who belong to the same denomination we belong to, maybe even the same church. Are you, are you with me? And we can see all through history that they have been the people that have persecuted Christians. We can see that Jesus died at their hands. We can see all the prophets of the Old Testament prophesying against the people of God. We can accept having separation with Mormons. We can accept having separation with oneness Pentecostals. We may be even able to separate having division with liberal Protestants. But, you know, you and me? No, it can't be right for us to fight. It can't be right for us to not have peace. Because if you're my friend, you're God's friend. Isn't that how God works? Oh, I see. He's Tim's friend. I forgot that, stupid me. But, listen, if you say that you love peace with God, would you please see the true condition of the people around you? And you want to know whether or not you're able to see the condition of people around you? All you have to do is ask yourself whether they get angry with you. And if you don't have good people, you know, you know what I mean by good people. If you don't have good people getting angry with you, there's something wrong with you. You're not a Christian. 
you're not. Because Christians have always been a pill to the world. And it doesn't matter if they're six foot two heavy 60s Christians or if they're widows. The world is not at peace with God, and therefore the world is not at peace with the people of God. It never is. And so if you spend your life trying to be at peace with the world, then you don't have peace with God, because those who have peace with God do not have peace with the world. Now, is anybody here ahead of me and realizes that I'm simply quoting Jesus? (laughs) This is what Jesus says. He says, if they hated me, they will hate you also. No servant is greater than his master. And you say, yeah, but that's not people in the church, and that's not relatives. And Jesus says, if any man would come after me, he must, what, take up his cross and follow me. And then he says, the members of your own household are going to be your greatest enemies. Brother, sister, mother, father, husband, wife. You have to hate them. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go home and not fix dinner for them. What it means is they have to be so relegated in your heart that it looks like hatred to pagans. Do you understand this? And listen, the minute you relegate your mother, guess what? She will be angry. (laughs) No mother takes getting relegated well, right? And actually, fathers don't either. But there's something more sort of guttural about the relegation of a mother that brings out something a little more organic, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Oh, my. Listen, love God. Love him. Love him. Love him. Don't fear the world, fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't fear your parents. Fear God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This week, right today, starting, is the Burning Man Festival out of Nevada. Burning Man is uh, Woodstock done over by old white people who are very rich. It's all rich white people. You know what the center of the festival is? It's in a concentric circles around an effigy at the center of it, a, a huge man who is burned. Huge man, Burning Man Festival. The world has its own morals. The world has its rebellion. Everybody there dresses up or gets naked, and it's 50-50. Old people, isn't that horrible? (laughs) And they worship their God. What is their God? Well, their God requires the sacrifice of man. They burn man. If you read their mission statement, they have a mission statement. The text is about that long. Their mission statement ends with this declaration, we will always what? Burn the man. 
And so the world is not in submission to God. The world hates God, and the world is giving itself to every single sin of the land of Canaan. The world is sacrificing its children in the mouth of Moloch. Okay? They are killing their unborn children by the millions, by the billions around the world. The world is committing incest. The world is committing adultery. The world is committing sodomy. The world is committing lesbianism. The world is demanding that God not shame these things and that the church should accept them. And out there at Burning Man, all these things are celebrated. They're celebrated. And do you think that God is calm about it? God wiped out the Canaanites. Then he said to the Israelites, if you ever get to the point where you do these things, the land will vomit you out as it vomited out the Canaanites. That's the exact words of God. That's the warning he gives them. And here we are, after 2,000 years of God progressively cleaning Christendom up, in our generation, we have made it filthy, and now it's coming in the church. And you think, well, nobody ever told me this. (laughs) Your conscience told you it. It's very clear. And so they light this man on fire, and this man is burned. Why? For what sins? Well, for, for the fact that there are single-use plastic straws at Starbucks. For the fact that there are single-use bags at Kroger. Finally, Kroger has admitted that it, it's been wicked. And they've said they're going to get rid of them. And, and then, I, I, I'm very sorry about to have to say this, it grieves me deeply. And I am being facetious, okay? All right? It grieves me deeply, but in the first service, was sitting there, and I'm going to go to the eye clinic this week, and it's going to make me filthy. I'm going to have to take a shower when I get out, because in that clinic, Bosch and Loam packages have disposable contact lenses. <laughs> it's like, did you read that this week? Now everybody's worried that people are wearing disposable contact lenses that get washed down the toilet too often. This is absolutely true. Come on, raise your hand. You've seen it this week. Okay, see? Hands up. And this is the petty, rebellious, superficial morality of a world that is shoving its fist in the face of God. Listen, you are not at peace with this world. If you're at peace with this world, you're not at peace with God. This does not mean that I believe in disposable contact lenses. My wife uses hard lenses. I've made this a condition of our marriage. (laughs) And I never use straws. Why would you drink a hot drink through straws at Starbucks? Can't figure it out. And as for those single-use bags, I drive a Prius. I have geothermal. And so I never use those Kroger bags once. As a matter of fact, the only bags I use once are actually paper bags. I throw them out when I get them home. But those, those treasures, I mean, I have whole packs and stacks of them. It, it shoves my basket forward, and it spreads out of the drawer. And it's, I love single-use bags plastic bag. Listen, my point is not 
that Christians don't care about bags out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Do you understand? I do care about that. But this is not the fear of God. This is the fear of man. Poor Carol put a bin in our office that said recycling on it. I think that was you. Oh, it was somebody. And you know, I don't want the church to have anything to do with the little laws manufactured by man that are displacing the serious laws that destroy human lives and the, and the glory of God. I, won't, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Because the minute you take your eye off the ball, you're petty. What you have to do is see the rebellion all around you against God. And the way you see that is you look at the rebellion in your own heart, okay? Look at the rebellion in your own heart. And you'll see it. And the minute you see the rebellion in your own heart, then you realize how lost the people all around you are. And then, instead of healing their wounds falsely by acting as if you agree with their petty morality and you're trying to be moral too, it's so pathetic. This is what you're going to do, okay? In 2 Corinthians, we read this. We read the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is chapter 5, he is a new creature. Now, you all know that verse. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We all know that verse, right? But here's what comes. Now, all these things are from God, who what? who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what you're called to. You're called to go into the world and take people who think they're reconciled to God by being green or by being non-racist or non-sexist or by being accepting of everybody, you are to go out into the world and without taking away an inch of the glory of God and his holiness and the depravity of man and his rebellion, you are to reconcile them to God by speaking to them of Jesus Christ. And yeah, most of them will reject you. They'll laugh at you like they did in Athens. But you wouldn't believe how many of them will be reconciled to God and will give up their petty morality. They'll give up their, their attempts to deny God the glory that is due him. And when they realize that the solution isn't themselves, they will be reconciled to God. Would you have faith for the gospel instead of having faith for yourself? Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Stop trying to manipulate and, 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 and modulate God. Let God be God. You faithfully represent him, and some will hate you, and others will love you, and they will be in heaven to welcome you when you come there. You know, please... Be agents of reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, and therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have you ever begged anybody on behalf of Christ? Beg them! He, God, made him Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Don't modulate it. Don't take away the tension. Don't apologize for God. He is angry against the wicked every day, but he has sent his son. What more could we ask? Praise God. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, would you please restore us to our ministry of reconciliation that we may be diplomats, apostles, missionaries for you to a world that is lost in hedonism and rebellion. Give us love for the lost, Father, that we may fulfill our ministry of reconciliation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.